Loved ones, I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to the scripture passage we'll consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 7. If you have our Pew Bible before you, that's found on page 1069. God's word comes to us from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 8. Hear now the word of God. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your, you and your son Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram and Ephraim and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and the crevices in the rock and all the thorn bushes and all the water holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to take off your beards also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, he will have curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. 
Men will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has rejected the gentle, gently flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river. The king of Assyria, with all his pomp, it will overflow all its channels run over all its banks and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together this morning. Well, loved ones, for the past three years, we could say, the United States of America seems to be in a constant state of crisis. What is a crisis? A crisis it comes from the English, or the English word crisis comes from the Greek word krisis for decision, decision. So a crisis is a time of intense difficulty or trouble when a difficult or important decision must be made, which will either lead to recovery or to collapse, either to standing firm or to falling. Now, back in 2020, columnist David Brooks wrote that America is facing five major crises all at the same time, and he lists them there. The pandemic, the fights about racial disparity in our nation, political realignments, instead of uh, aligning around uh, policy or a principle now aligning around personalities, then also the social justice movement, and then he lists the fifth one, the possibility of an economic depression just on the future horizon. Now, Brooks says that these five changes, each reflecting a huge crisis and hitting all at once, have created a moral, spiritual, and emotional disaster. Now, that describes the huge crises in American life uh, for America as a nation, but I know that many of you have gone through your own personal crises of late. Things like unemployment, uh, money problems, economics, right? Depression, loneliness, your own sickness or the sickness of other loved ones, the death of loved ones, or that possibility of their impending death. These are great crises that are put before us, and with each crisis comes that decision. How will you respond? Where is your hope in the midst of the crisis? Now, this text before us is about how to press on with hope through any crisis that 
comes to us in life. It's a story here about a nation and its leader in a state of crisis, the nation of Judah and their leader, King Ahaz. And so in our study of the text this morning, we'll first consider the existential crisis, then secondly, the sign of hope, and lastly, the coming despair. My hope and prayer for each of us as we study this this text together is that you would walk away this morning choosing to trust more deeply in the Lord our God, who has promised to be with us through each and every crisis, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. So first, let's consider that existential crisis. Now, the history of this passage here, what this is referring to, it is hard to understand for us as we read it. I mean, I was thinking about this, that I, barely, I can barely tell you what happened 20 years ago in the United States of America, where I live and when I was alive, let alone 2,700 years ago, what happened in the Middle East, right? And we have the scriptures themselves that give us this record for us, but even still, even after going through seminary and studying the scriptures for myself, uh, the history between the reign of King David and then afterwards with his son Solomon, from that time period up until the birth and arrival of King Jesus, the history gets a bit blurry for me, and I always have to really uh, study it deeply to try and understand what's going on. And so let's briefly try and get a clear picture of where this story takes place in the larger timeline. So last week we heard that story about Isaiah's call, right? He received the call from God. He was ushered into the presence of God in the temple where he had the vision of the Lord Almighty, the great king. So King Uzziah in Israel or in Judah had died, but God showed up and revealed himself to Isaiah saying, no, the Lord God Almighty still reigns. He is king. And so this story with King Ahaz here that we just read, it happens about five years after that vision that Isaiah had. And this is about 730 years before the birth of Christ. So at this point in history, God's people, uh, the people of Israel, were already divided into two kingdoms or two nations. The larger Uh, northern kingdom of Israel with their capital in Samaria, and then the smaller kingdom of Judah in the south with their capital in Jerusalem. And so besides the prophet Isaiah in this text here, in this story, the other main player, the other main character we hear about is King Ahaz, who was the king of Judah in the south. It's It's important to remember here that God's promises of final, ultimate salvation were attached not to the northern kingdom, but rather to the southern kingdom with the dynasty of King David, where his heirs reigned there in Judah, in Jerusalem. And so once God's people were divided, the kingdom of Judah in the south always had prominence in the eyes of the Lord, especially protected by God and his grace. And so that's why we see here God is sending his prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz in the south, right? The king of Judah. It wasn't because Ahaz was a better man. He was actually a terrible, wicked king. But God was keen on saving Judah, the southern kingdom, over and over again because of his promises that God had already made, especially his promise that he made to David. And so God will not let Judah ultimately fall because God was faithful to his promises. 
So that's a bit of that background of the story here. What was the crisis that faced Judah as a nation and King Ahaz? What were they up against? Well, what they were up against was their own kin. That northern kingdom of Israel had made an alliance with the Syrians. Now, why? Well, Israel and Syria in the north were trying to protect themselves from a massive Assyrian empire. That's where it gets a little confusing. Not Syria, but Assyrian empire, this massive growing empire that was expanding. And so Israel in the north and Syria linked up together to try and protect themselves from that larger Assyrian empire that was growing and expanding. And when King Ahaz and his people, the people of Judah, heard about that alliance, they were dismayed. Look at verse 2. It reads, Now the house of David, that is Ahaz and Judah, was told, Aram, which is the king of Syria, has allied itself with Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. And these, these uh, different names, that's what makes it in part especially confusing. So how do we understand that? Well, think of this, you know, how we refer to the United States of America as the USA or America, right? So there are different titles to refer to the same thing. Here, Ephraim also refers to, the, to Israel, that northern kingdom. So they hear about this alliance. And in brief, what Ahaz and the people of Judah heard about is that alliance. And the text says, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, like trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They're shaken to their core. Why? Why? Well, because Judah was this tiny little nation. They were outnumbered and outplayed from a geopolitical standpoint. They had no chance of survival or a victory. It's kind of like in today's world, uh, Ukraine trying to fight off Russia after Russia makes an alliance with the United States of America. I mean, it would be totally game over for them. It was a huge crisis. And so God sends his prophet to Ahaz in this crisis to let him know that this Israeli and Syrian alliance was soon going to attack Judah. They were going to try and take over Judah and set up a puppet king in the place of Ahaz. Now notice in verse 3 that God sends Isaiah to bring this message to King Ahaz with his son. So Isaiah has a son whose name is Shir Yashub. I love this name, not particularly the way it sounds, but what it means. If you look in the footnotes, it might tell you it means a remnant will return or a remnant will be saved. So his very name is a statement of faith that God would keep a remnant of his people alive. And so here, here he is, Isaiah, coming to meet King Ahaz with his son, whose very name was a message of hope, but also a kind of message of warning to the king. These two nations would try and destroy Judah, but God would keep for himself a remnant. So that's hope. But the implicit warning here was this, King Ahaz, will you be part of that remnant? And it all depends on how you will respond to God's word of promise. Depends on how you would respond in the crises. Would you stand in faith or will you fall in despair? Now look at verse 4 through 8 of our text. First, Isaiah assures King Ahaz that God was not going to let Israel and Syria win. So God was going to protect Judah from that threat that was upon them. He tells them, be careful, keep calm, 
Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Another translation literally could be these two cigarette butts. They're nothing in my eyes, is, God, is what God is saying. He's saying, basically, these two punks are trying to come and bully you and ruin you, and I will not let it happen. I have your back. So don't try and save yourself. Don't do anything. Just trust in me. I've got this. That's what that first message from Isaiah was. So in the middle of this crisis, this huge crisis, this was the turning point for King Ahaz. Would he trust in God's promise to save him and the people of Judah, or would he try to save himself in some other way? Would Ahaz accept the alliance of God as his king, or would he seek a political alliance with another nation? This big decision before King Ahaz is posed for us in verse 9 at the end of that first message where Isaiah warns him, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. What Isaiah is saying is, if you cannot stand in faith, you will fall in despair. Now, as this applies to us, this is very important. We learn here that true establishment depends on faith. Fortitude, strength, depends on one's faith. Think of this, a tree will topple over in the winds, as we often see here in the city of Ontario, when they don't have good, strong roots. And so, when life blows your way, a crisis, if you are not rooted in faith, you will topple over. You will not be established. Now, how does faith keep us standing in a crisis? Well, first we can think of it in pragmatic terms, practically. Faith in something bigger than you and better than you in your crisis gives you hope to hold onto. It's like this lifeline that's dropped in front of you in the middle of your dark crises that you can grab a hold of and hold on and it pulls you through the darkness. If you do not believe in a higher power and a greater purpose in life, then the crises might crush you. You know, it's hard. It's hard to make your way through the dark valleys of life, which are many, when you don't have faith that there is light at the end of the tunnel, when you don't have hope at the end of this story of humanity or your own personal story. So having faith in something that is bigger and better than you, something that is also in control of your crisis and has a purpose for it, is very useful. It's pragmatic. It's helpful. Belief in God really does help people psychologically, spiritually. It strengthens the core of our being, our heart. As I mentioned in the beginning, many in our culture today, as many are facing these variety of crises, all different sorts of them, for the past three years, sadly, what do we see? Many are not standing in faith. Many are falling in despair. Two Princeton economic, economicists um, by the name of Anne Case and Angus Deaton learned that the fastest rising death rates among Americans were from drug overdoses, suicide, and alcoholic liver disease. Deaths from these causes have increased between 56% and 387%, depending on the age 
the, those who were examined. And over the past two decades, averaging 70,000 deaths per year. Deaton, that same person from that study, a Nobel Prize economist, testified in 2020 before the House Budget Committee where he discussed COVID-19 and he discussed also these deaths by despair, but the U.S. government has still not addressed deaths by despair. So clearly, clearly we see that many people are not standing in faith. Many are falling in despair, and it's not something that we're seeing. It's something that we're pushing away from the public eye. What has happened to us? Why is this happening as a people? I think two facts are interesting together. First, what have we seen over the past 50-plus years? The American culture, by and large, has abandoned the Christian faith for a godless worldview. We've abandoned the Christian faith. And secondly, in times of crisis, we see that many are falling into despair. Is that a coincidence? I do not think it is. I think there's a strong correlation between the two. I believe we are sinking as a culture in the storms of life because people have left the Christian foundation that we once held to and people have embraced and said the sand dunes of godless secularism. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I believe they are directly related. And as Isaiah says here in this text, if you won't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. If you have no faith that a brighter tomorrow is eventually coming, it is really hard to stand firm in your darkest hours of today. Now, is that all that Isaiah is saying here? Is he saying that this is just something that's practical, pragmatic, that helps us psychologically? No, he's saying more. Isaiah is saying that faith in God and his promises is more than just a psychological benefit. Why? Because God is real and his promises are true. And that's what we see next in the story because God here shows up and he's willing to prove his faithfulness to King Ahaz. He offered to give him a sign, a sign of his own choosing, whatever you want. And so that's our second point, the sign of hope. Look at verses 11 to 12. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. God is saying here to King Ahaz, let me prove to you that I exist and that I will come through for you. I want to make my glory known to you. Just ask what you want. He basically invites Ahaz to the table and says, ask what you want from me. Here's a blank check. Name what you would like. Name the sign. I'll give it to you. Now, God doesn't always or typically work in this way. Often in the scriptures, he rebukes people for wanting a sign from God to prove his faithfulness. But this is different here because God himself initiates it and he's extending the offer to King Ahaz. How does he respond? He's not interested in the offer. He's not interested in that perhaps old religion. Think of this. This is the, the God of Israel in Ahaz's day was already old in his eyes, right? Clearly, he doesn't think that the God of Isaiah is going to offer him any kind of substantial help. And so he refuses the offer. He rejects the sign from God. 
And in that way, he rejects God himself, refusing a gift from someone intent on giving it to you. It's not courteous. It's rude. It's basically saying, I don't want what you have because I'm better off without you. So by rejecting this offer of a sign, he was rejecting God and his ways. It sounds pious. Oh, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. But in fact, it was rude and arrogant. Now, what happens next is fascinating and also foreboding. Look at verse 13. Isaiah tells Ahaz, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Now, maybe you didn't catch it the first time we read through, but this is significant. There's a change in the possessive pronoun that's used here. Up until this point, as he's talking with King Ahaz, he has referred to God as your God, your God, King Ahaz. But now Isaiah says, my God. Isaiah is saying something very big with that small change in the pronoun, that small change from your God to my God. Isaiah is saying here, Ahaz, my God is no longer on your side. You rejected God, and so now he has rejected you. You will not stand. You will fall in despair. Now, we might think that that would be the end of the story, but it isn't. Why not? Because God's plan of salvation is always much bigger than just one single individual. God had a plan and a promise to redeem his people. And so remember that Isaiah's son, who was standing beside him during this whole encounter, his son there, standing beside him, was named a remnant shall return. And so God was not with King Ahaz, but he was still with his chosen people, with his remnant people, because God is relentlessly faithful to his promises and to his covenant people even if some individuals might reject him and refuse his grace. Now, what Paul says in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 is very fitting here. He says this, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, like King Ahaz, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And so Ahaz denied God's gracious gift, so God denied Ahaz. But the faithfulness, or rather the faithlessness of God's people could not stop God from being faithful to his promises and to his people in general. For that reason, despite Ahaz's refusal of this sign, this rejection of God's sign, God decides to give a sign of his own choosing. It is a sign of hope, a sign that's not for Ahaz in particular, but a sign for his people, his people that look to him for faith and hope in him. And what was that sign of hope? We see it in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel which means God with us in Hebrew. Now, here comes another tricky part in interpretation of the passage because this sign here has two layers of fulfillment in the story of redemption. The first layer of fulfillment happens in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, 
with the birth of Isaiah's second son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, this strange name in Hebrew means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. It's a bit foreboding, ominous. What does it mean? Well, it refers to the eminent undoing of that Israeli and Syrian alliance that King Ahaz was so afraid about. And that comes out in verse 16, where he says, Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And so, this son of Isaiah was a sign from God that he was still with his people. And so his name means Emmanuel, God with us. That's the first layer of fulfillment in Isaiah's own day and age. But of course, as we know, as we have read the New Testament and consider each uh, Advent season during Christmas, the second fuller layer of fulfillment is found in the New Testament with the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Isaiah's son, therefore, prefigured or pointed forward ahead to the birth of Jesus, the true sign of hope, the true son of David, the true Emmanuel, God with us. So we have these two layers of fulfillment. What we see is that despite the faithfulness of God's people in times of crisis, God gave them a sign of hope He gave a sign to his people in the days of Isaiah, and he sent his son as a sign of everlasting hope 700 years later with the birth of Christ. So, loved ones, this is what we need to see. This is the hope that we need to grab a hold of and cling to by faith to help us pull us through that darkness. This is how we avoid falling into despair. This is how we stand in faith. By looking to the sign that God has sent us in time and in space, in human history, the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us in human flesh. Now, back in 1948, 1948, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay entitled, On Living in an Atomic Age. So he was contemplating the possibility of a nuclear war and the destruction of all of human civilization. And he wrote, What do you think all of this effort of humanity was to come to an end? The real answer is known to almost everyone who has even a smattering of science. The whole story is going to end in nothing. He goes on to say, If nature is all that exists, if that's our view of the world, a secularist view of the world where there is no God, it's just nature, If there is no God and no life of some quite different sort somewhere outside of nature, then all human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun. The sun's running out of energy. If there is no God, humanity is just an accidental flicker, infinitesimally short in relation to the oceans of dead time which preceded it and will follow it. And there will be no one even to remember it. Lewis is talking about this massive existential crisis of humanity that each and every small crisis is pointing to. What is life for? Is there any lasting purpose or meaning to all of our joys and all of our sorrows in life? Tim Keller, in his recent book, Hope in Times of Fear, he says this about what Lewis is talking about. Lewis is arguing that no one can live consistently 
with the belief that we are only matter and that our ultimate end is oblivion. So we have no hope unless, unless there is a God who has promised to guide history not to an end but to a new beginning, to a world in which finally death and evil are completely destroyed and justice and peace reign supreme, the sign of which is the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ includes powerful evidence from the empirical realm and, while still requiring faith, provides a highly reasonable, rational hope that there is a God who is going to renew the world. So, loved ones, friends, we find that God has given us more than simply a word of hope, more than just a promise. He has sent us the sign of hope, the birth of his own son, Jesus, and then his death on the cross, and most importantly, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that great sign of hope that there is more to come. It's God's great promise to save us from the real alliance that we should be afraid of, the alliance of sin and death, and the oblivion that that threatens upon us. In the face of death and the threat of oblivion, nothing can save us but the promise of resurrection power. Nobody claims to have the power of resurrection but Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that has proven that he has that power to raise others from the dead by rising from the dead himself. Jesus, loved ones, is that son who was conceived of the Virgin Mary, and he is humanity's only hope. Jesus is the sign of hope. So with this existential crisis that's put before us, what is your decision? God has promised to save from sin and death all who call upon Jesus by faith. And so the question is, will you stand with Jesus or will you fall into despair? How will you press on? How will you respond to the gift of God and the person of Jesus is the most important decision that you will ever make in life. If you trust in Jesus, God is saying you will stand with him. He will preserve your faith to the very end. And even after death takes your body, God promises that you will stand with Christ in the new creation with resurrection power. So receive God's sign of hope. Trust in him and you will stand with him. The choice is put before you. Stand with Jesus. Now we come to our last and brief point. Because if you reject Jesus like King Ahaz did, rejecting God's gracious sign of hope, then you will fall into despair. And so we see, lastly, the coming despair. Look at verse 17. God promised to be with his people in their crisis, being Emmanuel, God with us. Remember that God promised that that Israeli-Syrian alliance would soon fall, even within a few years, but it wasn't all good news for Ahaz. Look at verse 17, it says, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, since that division between Israel and Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now someone has said that this whole episode that we're considering here was like a mouse being attacked by two rats and the mouse is squeaking for the cat to come and save him. King Ahaz being the mouse in Israel and Syria, the two rats trying to attack Ahaz and Judah. 
But soon something far worse is coming than those two rats. The cat would come. The mighty empire of Assyria would soon come crashing down and eat up the mouse like a dessert. So in the following verses, God warns Ahaz about their future. He refers to it as a kind of judgment day. The phrase, in that day, is repeated a few times here. So to save himself from Israel and Syria, what we find out in the history is that King Ahaz was soon to make an alliance with Assyria, making an alliance with that big empire. But it was a bad decision. It saved them in the short run, but it resulted in great oppression for God's people. In a sense, King Ahaz sold the soul of his people to the devil by making that alliance with Assyria, and they paid for it. In chapter 8, Isaiah describes the future oppression of Assyria upon Judah like a flood of despair. Look at, verse, or look at chapter 8, verses 7 to 8. It says, The Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. The king of Assyria, with all his pomp, will overflow its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep onto Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breath of your land, Emmanuel. I love the way in his commentary Ray Ortland describes this. He says here that poor little Judah will have to stand on his tiptoes just to keep its head above the water. The people will survive, God's remnant, but barely. Assyria will eventually fade from history, and Judah will remain the land of Emmanuel. God will be with them through it all, more than that and more than they know. He will come to them in the fullness of time as a boy named Jesus, the Savior of the world. So friends, at the close here, a flood of God's judgment is coming upon this world as well. It won't come in literal waters, but it will extend to the ends of the earth, and every person will face their maker on that final day. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Acts 17, saying the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is Jesus Christ. So again, at the close, considering that coming wrath of God, the question is, are you prepared to stand in faith before God, your maker? Are you prepared to stand before your creator? Or will you fall in despair? How will you hold up under the greatest crisis of all, the final judgment? Are you prepared? Just like with King Ahaz, there are two options before you. Trust in God's way of salvation by faith in the sign of hope, which is Jesus. Or try and save yourself. Will you stand in faith or will you fall in despair? The choice is yours, and I pray that God would grant you the grace to choose wisely. Amen. Father God, we are deeply humbled by your word and the reality that it presents before us. It gives us a clearer vision of the life that we live, the world that we live in. And it presents before us the great crisis that we all have to face, which is coming before you, our 
God, our creator, our judge. But we rejoice as your people that you have given us a sign of hope, that despite our faithlessness, you have been faithful and you have sent your son to die for our sins, he who rose again from the dead. And he alone is our hope. Lord, we trust in him and we ask that if anyone here does not yet trust in him, that you would grant that person repentance and faith that they too might stand with Jesus, both now through the crises of life and in that last day as well. Give us faith to persevere to the end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, in response to God's word, let us sing a song of application. 187, I belong to Jesus.